So you may have seen this video that was going around this week. Uh, a guy named A.J. Clemente. He's a news anchor in North Dakota. It was his first day anchoring the news. And as the other anchor is uh, about to introduce him to uh, the viewing public, uh, this happened. Good evening, I'm Van Chu. You may have seen our news report, AJ, on... So there, there you have it. The, the first two words he said in his job as a local anchor, I can't repeat. And he got fired for saying those words. The question is... What was he so upset about? What made him say what he said? So what happened was he looked down at his script and he saw that he had to pronounce the name of the Ethiopian guy who'd won the London Marathon. And uh, I'll spell that out for you. T-S-E-G-A-Y-E-K-E-B-E-D-E. That's enough to uh, worry any new TV personality. So we're going to help out AJ for next time. Ethiopian Amsterdam this afternoon. Hello. Hi, hi. Okay, so how does uh, how how do I say this name? Segai, Segai, Kebede. All right, there you go. Yes, Segai, Kebede. See, that's not so bad. It's not This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, how to talk about beer when you're around people who talk about beer. We'll also tell you how to apologize when your cell phone goes off in a place where it shouldn't. We've all been there. But first... We're hearing more and more stories from uh, people in Boston about how they handled being locked down all day last Friday. Dan McCarthy is a writer for Esquire magazine. Hey, Dan, why don't you tell us about your story? All right. So, I mean, basically what happened is this. Um, uh, you know, I Thursday night, I uh, after obviously would have been a pretty long week, I, uh, you know, I needed to blow off a little steam. I hadn't seen any, I'd only talked to family since it all went down, and my uh, dad has been bartending at the Warren Tavern for about, you know, better part of 20 years. So I'm like, oh, well, this would be a good chance to go and just say hi to my dad and have a few beers with friends and that sort of thing. So around whatever time it was, like quarter to two, um, I got a text from this girl who was a friend, who is a friend of mine. It's like, hey, are you still there? And, you know, do you want to come over? And I just was like, uh, sure. Uh, and so I kind of texted back, sure. And, you know, had our little, uh, rendezvous and, but where it all kind of started, the fog was lifting was when I woke up in the morning, I, uh, sort of like, you know, my head was spinning and I put my feet down and I stepped on a shard of glass. It was like a broken wine glass on the ground from whatever we were doing the night before (laughs) and, uh, got up and I turned on the news and then I, I, was now starting to comprehend exactly what was going on. And I'm seeing the reports, like the whole city shut down. I mean, obviously everything was focused in Watertown, but, it, you know, the, the, the governor basically said, like, the whole city, like, nobody leave, nobody knew what was going on. They didn't know if there was more people, there was more bought, like, it, there was too many questions. And th- this is, I mean, and that's the point where you kind of want to be sneaking out of there. Yeah, it's just like, literally, I'm on lockdown. And, I mean, luckily, the, the, this girl was a friend of mine, but it would still didn't, you know, that didn't really depreciate the inherent awkwardness of, like, now I really can't go anywhere. Could the two of you uh, acknowledge that, wow, this is, we, we probably would have already parted ways, but because of a citywide lockdown, we're now stuck together today? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what we were kind of giggling about a little bit. <laughs> like, we, I mean, it, it, we didn't really vocalize it like that. It was more sort of like, so I guess I'm still here then for a while, huh? <laughs> And she was like, yep, guess so. And, like, so then it's even more awkward, like, sweeping up the broken glass, like, in the room. (laughs) And, like, so what do you want to talk about? Like, you know, it was just, it was completely, it was just such a surreal situation. While on the TV in the background, all this chaos is unfolding. 
And if, in a weird way, that helped to sort of deflate the intrinsic awkwardness of not being able to go home. You had something to talk about. Yeah, it was like, oh, wow, yeah. look at all that stuff that's horrible. It's still <laughs> happening. And then I'm, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, I don't know what when I can leave. This is crazy. Uh, and how, how long were you stuck there? I think I finally left and then caught a cab probably somewhere around 6 or 6.30. So I was pretty much there the whole day. And so when you did finally realize that you could leave, did you sneak out? I didn't sneak out, no. The minute the lockdown was lifted, I kind of looked at her, and I'm like, well, I haven't showered all day, and I've been here far longer than I probably should have, so see you later. We just kind of like <laughs> laughed, gave each other a hug, and I just split out the door and just wobbled down the street, just still kind of like taking in the whole day. Well, you know, you, you and this, this woman, you shared a, a pretty intense experience. Yeah. Do you think maybe it's more than a one-night stand? <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it's funny. I... I, I People now like kind of want a Hollywood ending. They're like, "Hey, this you know relationship born out of crisis is perfect. Like this is like the start of something kind of rom com." I can say pretty much unequivocally that you know, no, it's not going to go another step. It, we were just friends, and it was just this one time thing. You probably imagine there's nothing worse than the walk of shame, but the the lockdown of shame this is a truly unique human experience. It really was, and you know, I, I guess I, I guess I live to serve the people in whatever way I just did with this piece. <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you so much for your story, and uh, best of luck next time, I guess. <laughs> Thanks so much. This week, Reuters published an obituary for the philanthropist George Soros. Very moving, very nice, except he's not dead. So how does something like this happen? Yeah, and generally we were wondering kind of how do obits get written in the first place? Online with us now is Bill McDonald. He's the obituaries editor for the New York Times. So, all right, Bill, first question. When do you usually start writing an obit for somebody, for like a big name who's died? It, it really depends on uh, the individual. Uh, and uh, For example, we often write them in advance. There are so many people we should be ready for, uh, prominent people who uh, you know the, we need to put into the paper or onto the website fairly quickly. So we write them in advance. We have about 1,500 or so. And then it goes into a, a can and basically waits for that fateful day. What right. What's the, the calculus on who gets a an obituary ahead of time? Is it level of fame or, or do you also think about, you know, how imminent this person's death might be? It's a combination of those factors. The thinking is that if, if someone very, very prominent dies, a, a sports figure, you know, a politician, a movie star, um, we're going to need it fairly quickly. So that's the first calculus, fame, prominence. Um, and then we look at age and and health. We sort of apply a kind of actuarial uh, uh, yardstick to, to these yeah. folks. But but the essential uh, standard, I suppose, would be for those would be prominence and fame, yeah. Do you, do you know uh, of anyone who's kind of measuring their own fame? Like, does anyone ever say to you, Bill, Bill do you have... Do you have one for me yet? <laughs> Some people have asked. Yeah. And and people will ask or ask about other people, and we don't divulge. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we don't want it to appear on Gawker that we have uh, so-and-so is a bit ready. It just becomes sort of grist for gossip and such. Um and, and some are just actually very important people who may not be household names or headline names, but they might have done something quite momentous, a, a researcher who, you know, who discovered a cure for 
I don't know, hepatitis or something like that. It may not be. That might require some research, uh, some digging as well, and uh, you don't want to necessarily do that one on deadline. But that has to kind of help help uh, your job if you have people out there who are kind of like, hey, I, you know, I'm getting up there. Maybe you don't know this cool story about me when I was mm-hmm. younger, and they feed you yeah. that info. Oh, well, you know, it's funny. I do have a kind of file of... And I call them wannabes, and I and I, I don't say that with any disrespect, but it's it's there are people who send in their biographies in a sense, that sense their resumes, and they suggest that uh, perhaps we would want to get something ready for them, and sometimes uh, we do. Th- does it ever feel weird writing one in advance? Not really. It's you know it's our job. We're journalists. We 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 write stories. Um, it it. it, it that whole idea sort of wears off after a while. You know, occasionally, you, of course, you're aware of what you're doing, and you know that this is for publication only when that person is, isn't going to be around to read it. Well, it's such a it's such a, a monumental task to kind of commemorate the life of someone. Do you get a lot of uh, criticism from families when you kind of get things when you like maybe miss something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes they say we omit things, or they don't like that we include something, or we'll get a we'll get a, a note from a, a, a long lost cousin or nephew or brother of of so and so, and he'll complain that we didn't include that uh, him in the uh, list of survivors, and sometimes <laughs> we just don't know that he exists, and sometimes families consciously exclude people. You know, so we get caught in the middle uh, in their family from that list, and so we get caught in the middle of uh, family feuds. It's uh, it's very interesting. From time to time, we'll see uh, an obituary uh, that gets accidentally published before the person has died. Hey, has that ever happened to you? It hasn't happened to me, thank goodness. Um, it's happened before at the paper, yeah. uh, where uh, an actual obituary went in, um, written about a uh, ballerina from American ballerina and only did we learn later that she was alive and well living in Las Vegas I think <laughs> and uh, she did die a few years later but um, so that was an embarrassment and we had to run a obviously a correction um, it's the only time it's happened and I recall it, it happens sometimes now on the internet um, just the other day Bloomberg inadvertently published an advance advance obit on um, uh, on George Soros yeah. and who was alive and well as far as I know and uh, it got, you know, passed around the internet. And once it's there, it's you can take it down, but it's still somehow out there, I imagine. That's got to be really alarming if you're George uh, Soros and you see your name out there mm-hmm. and you feel like, I should go to the doctor. <laughs> I should just double check. <laughs> and he's going to read what others will read when he, presumably, you know, when he dies. Well, you know, what so that would thing. be unsettling, absolutely. Or it would be fantastic because you could read all your accomplishments, you know, sure, in sure. one, you know, one page document yeah. there. He might even say, "No, you got that wrong," and uh, correct it. But <laughs> we don't we don't show our work to the individuals, although we will sometimes talk to them in advance while they're obviously alive, and uh, they'll some some people are very eager to contribute to their own obit. I've had it happen where I'll I'll hear about someone dying, and I'll say, "Oh my God, I thought that guy was already dead." Has that ever mm-hmm. happened to you? <laughs> Oh, all the time. Really? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I get that reaction from people that uh, when we run an obit, they'll often say, I thought that person was dead years ago. And, you know, usually, particularly, you know, if, if someone dies at 97 and hasn't been in the limelight for 25 years, you know, people forget. 
Um, yeah, we have. I go through my advanced files sometimes, and I'll see I'll see people in there who have outlived their writers. Uh, the obit, the actual obit writer, has died, and really, and the subject is surviving. So, we may have to redo that one. How how uh, long have you been sitting on uh, the Zsa Gabor obit? Uh, uh, well, for quite a while. She is. Uh, you know, it's funny. We have we have all have fun in a way, doing this without, uh, again, disrespecting the dead or course, the about course. to be dead. But, you know, we have to laugh. We have to have, we have a lot of jokes uh, about, and, and she has now become, you know, kind of a punchline in a way, and I hate to say it, because only because she has, we've gone through so many alerts about her impending death that yeah. we think she's going to live forever. I have so many questions, Bill, but I know I, I can't ask you because, I mean, do <laughs> okay. you have one for Lindsay Lohan? You must, but you can't tell me that you um, do, right? I can't tell you that I do, but I, uh, you know, sometimes they're obvious uh, people, you know, who are, that's another factor, I suppose. I mentioned, I didn't perhaps mention, but someone who's living a kind of uh, life on the edge might warrant one too, you know? Yeah. Well, can I ask you, like, so like if someone like David Blaine, say, or some kind of weird stunt guy has a stunt Mm -hmm. coming up, do you, Mm -hmm. you have probably news people covering covering it, but are you also there just in case? We might be in a case like that. You know, we might be if it if it. Uh, yeah, I think if somebody is making a living doing those kinds of stunts, we'll probably write their obit in advance. I think. Yeah, I think so. So, Bill, you're a, you, you have a pretty prominent role at the paper of record. You've made a, some serious contributions to journalism. Have you started working on your obit? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have not, and I wouldn't write my own anyway. And I'm not sure that uh, how how much uh, <laughs> whether I'll merit one or not. Frankly, it, by the time I hope by the time uh, that day comes, I'm that it isn't too soon. Put it that way. So right, right. Well, thank you, Bill. This is really fascinating. Well, thanks for having me. On. Hey, Chris. What can we help you with? Well, I recently was at a beer tasting, okay. and my first beer tasting, and we were doing stouts, so I thought it would be easy, you know, like, I could just say it tastes like coffee, or mm-hmm. anything I've read at World of Beer once or twice. Right. But then, uh, since I went first, I, I realized the other people had a lot more intricate taste they were tasting. That's a lot of pressure, being in a, in a room of people that, you know, can, can really drop the terminology. Oh, yeah. And I was like, hmm, that tastes like beer. Right. And then like three guys down there like, it tastes like blackberries and pine trees or something. They did, Am I hearing you? They gave you some attitude about it? Uh, I got a, It was friendly attitude. Right. Most recently, I drink just regular Budweiser, and they just they made fun of me about that, and I think they just went off on showing me their source skills. Sounds to me like those guys need need a couple more beers. They need to relax a little bit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So what so what you're looking for is how to talk about uh, beer in a way that makes you sound knowledgeable. Yes. That would make going back there not so painful. I think we're gonna look into this and hopefully we can, you know, come back with some information for you. And if it doesn't if it doesn't work out, we're we're gonna go after these guys who made fun of you. We're we're gonna make them pay. There you go. I like that. Thank you so much, Mike and Ian. All right. Take care. You too. All right. I think we can help you with this. Yeah, we are going to head out to the Hop Leaf here in Chicago. It's one of our favorite places to drink beer. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk with the beverage director, Drew Larson. 
You'll know we're there when we start speaking in hushed tones and also kind of just kind of sound drunk. So, Drew, uh, you've heard Chris's story. What do you think? First thing I would say was that you can't be wrong. If you're around people who make you feel like you're an idiot or you're wrong for what you taste or like, you're on the wrong people. you got to find different people. <laughs> That's just my opinion, though. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about terminology that Chris can throw around, maybe some phrases to describe what he's tasting. Well, I'm thinking first we're talking to you, and are you, will we call you a beer sommelier? Is that the right word? No, beer sommelier is actually a trademark with somebody else, okay. uh, which is fine. I mean, because a lot of times what I am, it's called Cicerone. Cicerone. Yeah, Cicerone, and that's spelled with a C. Uh, this is a program that was started by a gentleman called Ray Daniels. He's written several books. He's a very prominent figure in beer. And this was equivalent in wine what a sommelier is. A Cicerone is to beer. So I am a certified Cicerone and uh, actually sitting for the Master Cicerone test shortly, for which, at this point, there's only six in the world. Is that test called the bar? <laughs> no, I think this test actually might be more difficult than the, than the bar. <laughs> okay. uh, it is a two, I think the bar is only a one-day test. The Master Cicerone test is a two-day exam with oh, wow. 10 hours of written essay exam, four hours of one-on-one interviews in those four categories, and then also four hours of tasting. So more difficult than the bar. So lawyers, uh, you can come in, we can talk about beer. <laughs> um, so to kind of understand what people are saying, though, I would start with most people are either Maltese or Hopheads. Maltese or Hopheads? Yes, Maltese or Hopheads. A Maltese is somebody who really likes the malt-driven beers, things like the uh, you know Belgian brown uh, brown ales, red ales that come out of England and Ireland that are real quite sweet and multi-driven. Then you have the hopheads. IPAs, for example, everybody hears the term IPA. That's an India pale ale. Those are hop-driven. Hops are those cute little green cones that provide bitterness and aroma and flavor to beer. In hops, we have a term called IBU, uh, International Bitterness Unit. And these are literally... Uh, calculable in the beer. You can pull at the number. So in terminology, when somebody talks about IBUs, for the most part, rule of thumb, the higher the number, the more bitter the beer. So if you're tasting something and the bitterness is through the roof, whoo, man, the IBUs on this must be through the roof. Uh, So that's a great, great term right there. Or you can just say, what are the IBUs on this? Even if you have no idea what the answer means, you can be like, wow, this, this is a really bitter beer what what are the ibus on this uh what's what are another few things that uh chris might want to say after he takes a sip of beer to sound like he knows what he's talking about well you can say this is delicious okay. yeah sure. <laughs> you know if you like the taste of a beer you can say you like it another thing is you can talk to uh, whether it's dry or sweet oh. you know this is a very dry beer uh you can also talk about where you taste something in it so for example what uh attack it's, this is used in both beer and in wine. Anything you drink, that first impression you get, while wow, the attack on this is really bitter. Or you could say, this is a really mellow attack. It's just not a, a huge beer on the front. Well, let's get uh, just one more thing for Chris. Let's give him one sentence, just one thing. If he could say this, nobody would question his knowledge. I think one thing to say that nobody could question your knowledge would likely be a sentence that included everything. So you might say something along the lines of, 
while I really was kind of a malty when I first started tasting beer, I've really gone more the way of the hop heads, and I love the big, bitter IBUs and the, and the citrus aromas, but I've come to realize that I really need to pay attention to the style of my beer for what I'm eating or drink or, or, or my mood because I like to change it up. Pretty good. Yeah, I think Chris is set. This is great. Thanks, Drew. Absolutely. Thanks for talking with me. What you're hearing right now is a secret message for people listening to this episode of How to Do Everything for the second time. If you're listening to this episode the first time, don't listen to what we're saying right now. Just let this go by. Another segment's about to begin. But if this is your second time through, this is your secret message. Congratulations. It's always the the worst thing when your cell phone goes off at the, the wrong time. Maybe you're in a meeting. Maybe you're in a job interview. Romantic dinner. You're what? starring in a play whatever on, the on case. broadway it's we're not making any judgments it's your first big break and your cell phone goes off in the middle of your soliloquy michigan district court judge raymond vote has a good solution to this judge can you tell us what happened well i think to better understand what happened you got to understand a little bit of background all right i'd like to say at least six seven years ago i started a policy that if your cell phone made a noise during court proceedings your phone would get taken by the deputy, and you had to pay $25 to get it back. And this is if you're on trial, if you're a lawyer, if you're in the it, gallery? A case on the record. Okay. I took phones from lawyers, prosecutors, cops, witnesses, <laughs> family, observers, the media. <laughs> you know, I yeah. collected a lot of phones through the years. So you, you kind of have a reputation as the anti-cell yeah. phone guy. Yeah. And I, I, I actually like technology. I just didn't like the distraction. Sure. I mean, I'd oh. carry my phone in my pocket just in case there was an emergency or something like that. I had my phone in my shirt pocket all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, just a couple months ago, I got a new phone. I'd been carrying a BlackBerry for years. And I got this Windows phone with a touch screen. Okay. And all of a sudden, during the trial... <laughs> We start hearing this. See if I can reproduce. Sorry, couldn't hear anything. Try saying "call mom" or "open calendar." <laughs> well, it's a voice command function, and I didn't even realize the thing even had that. It was very loud. It was a quiet time in the courtroom. The prosecutor was soft-spoken and was making an impassioned closing argument to the jury. And it stalled. He turned around and looked at me, and his jaw hit his chest. And uh, he stalled right out and lost his concentration completely. And I knew at that moment I was about to get <laughs> yeah. hung on my own petard. Yeah. Well, did the prosecutor, was? did he just revel in it, seeing you uh, fall victim no, to your own rules? No, no, no. I, I, I think the parties were astonished. Yeah. Well, we, we finished, you know, I said I apologized to him, and he kept going, and we finished closing arguments, and I did final instructions, and then we sent the jury out to deliberate. And, you know, we just finished up the record, and I say, counsel, do you have any additions, clarifications, instructions? No. And then I say, counsel, I apologize, and for the record, I'm holding myself in contempt. And there were some smiles and laughter, and I don't know if they believed me. And I wrote up a form. I have a form. I have, I have a stack of forms right there for the, you know, the courtroom deputy who happened to be absent that day. Yeah. Um, and I just wrote a contempt of court form, and wrote a check and walked downstairs to the window and got a receipt just like everybody else. Now, clearly, uh, you're a judge, so you, you know the yeah. law very well. Uh, had you ever heard of a a, a judge, th- there being any mechanism for a judge holding himself in contempt before? Well, I suppose, uh, you know, someone would have to appeal. That someone would be me. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, actually, you know, it, it, short answer is they cash my check. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and no one's going to appeal. Well, let me, let me just ask you, do you have a favorite song? Oh. Well, I mean, like, if I'm going to have a cell phone ringtone and I know that I'm going to see you, I may want to preload the ringtone to a song that I know is your favorite. <laughs> oh, anything by Springsteen would be a safe bet. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Well, Judge Vote, uh, thank you so much, and this is a good cautionary tale for us if we're ever uh, before you. Okay. Well, thank you. We got a letter from Scott. He tells us he listens to this show while building a kayak in his bedroom. Scott, these next 15 seconds are for you. The first song that I thought we might want to play is uh, Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Is that the name of that song? Or is it just Row Your Boat? That's a good question. Or is it Row, Row, Row Your Boat? I think it's actually Row, 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 parentheses, Your Boat. Yeah, I like it when they do that. Like we built this city. On rock and roll. Yep. We built this city. We built this city on rock. We're still collecting your Toilet of the Week nominations. Get them to howto at npr.org. This week's nomination comes from Chris. So, Chris, tell us about your toilet. Yeah, sure. So I am nominating the uh, Rieger Grill and Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. And um, it's just a nice restaurant and bar, pretty unassuming. It's a historic building. It was built in the 19-teens. Um, and the bathroom is kind of the same, that you go in there and it's a lot of, you know, it's got the original subway tiling, a lot of porcelain, you know, wood stalls and things like that. And it seems kind of preserved in museum-ish, which is pretty much underscored when you see right above the urinal, there's this huge brass plaque that says Al Capone pissed here. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the, the claim to fame. So did you uh, piss where Al Capone did? I did, yes. Stood in the spot where um, Chicago's greatest gangster uh, did his business and I did the same. So wait, so Chris, we know that there's a plaque because that's where Al Capone pissed. Right. But, but there wasn't a plaque where Al Capone washed his hands? No, that's apparently unverified, I guess, that it's not clear. Um, you know, he tended to skirt his taxes and not pay his taxes, which eventually got him in trouble. So maybe there's an assumption that he sort of cut corners on bathroom hygiene as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, w- I, w- I was on the fence about Al Capone, but he might... He might actually be a pretty bad guy. He's a dirty dude. Right, right. Did you wash your hands? Of course. All right. Of course. I am not a crime lord nor a gangster. We should really start asking that of everyone. Yeah. I, I, too late. We've realized <laughs> yeah. that. Include, yeah, that's true. Include the sinks. How are the sinks? How, what kind <laughs> of soap they use? How sanitary is it? Yeah. Well, congratulations, Chris. You have this week's Toilet of the Week. Yay. Thanks so much, guys. That does it for this week's show. What did you learn, Ian? I, I learned that, you know, if, if you're big enough, somewhere someone is writing your obituary. It's unsettling, don't you think? Well, I think I, I think it's, you know, George Soros, who's his obituary got published right. prematurely this week. To be able to read that, it's kind of that fantasy that you, you get to see what people actually thought of you while you were alive. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like you get to be a ghost for a little bit. I think, yeah, and I think if you are George Soros, you should go to Reuters this week and just be like, boo, here I am. I'm funding your charity from beyond the grave. 
Again, I'm George Soros, the dead one, from your paper. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Brad Carey. Brad, you have the voice of an angel. Uh, we should mention that we are going to New York next week to do this big uh, wait, wait, don't tell me Cinecast thing. We're going to be super busy. I find it highly unlikely that we will be able to get a podcast next week. So if you want to listen to the show, listen to this episode again and uh, listen closely and you, you'll you hear a secret message for second time listeners. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. This will teach you to publish obituaries prematurely. Well, wait. Is he dead then or not? Oh, sorry. I sort of forgot what we were doing.